RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. The idea of a duty of good faith has kind of been rebranded as a, a duty of fair presentation, but you can take the sentences from Mansfield's judgment and honestly, you can transplant them into statute around the world today, 250 years later. It all still stands from a judgment given in 1766. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC, and in each episode, I am joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week, we have Ian Anderson, and we're going to discuss the origins of the duty of utmost good faith. Ian is a lawyer based in Singapore. In fact, he is more than a lawyer. He's a partner of RPC, and this is therefore another insurance covered first, because this is the first time that my guest has been a colleague from RPC. Uh, Ian specialises in marine insurance and offshore energy risks, but we're not going to discuss them. Uh, Indeed, we're not going to discuss law at all, at least not directly. Um, Instead, we're going to look at the historical origins of the duty of utmost good faith and the case of Carter v. Berm, which is what we're going to discuss today. So, Ian, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Peter. Thanks very much for having me. Um, I always ask, so uh, how did you end up as an insurance lawyer? How did it, it, like everyone else, how did I fall into insurance? Well, I started out as a, I'm actually a failed barrister. I was a failed trainee barrister. I came out of London, couldn't get a pupillage. Couldn't face the shame of going back to Scotland, so I had to find a job. My best mark in my degree was in insurance law, so I got to start to find jobs in insurance. I got a job as a marine claims adjuster. That was my first job in London. And really, I took it from there in 1995, and uh, that gave me a route doing marine claims, a route to become a lawyer, and that got me specialising in insurance, really. And that's me sort of uh, 25 years later. Anyway... We're here to discuss a, a fantastic story. And this is actually going to be part one of a, a two-part series on the historical origins of the duty of utmost good faith. And who would have thought there'd be so much to say about it? Anyway, but before we go any further, please could you summarise in your, in your best legal voice uh, what we mean by uh, the duty of utmost good faith? So what the rule says is that before the insurance contract is bound uh, or before it begins, the insured has got to act in good faith and he's got to make a fair presentation of the risk to the insurer. The insurer has got to disclose all relevant material facts and facts that he represents that are relevant have to be true. They can't be inaccurate. Um, if the insurer doesn't disclose a material fact or, or does it inaccurately, the insurer has certain contractual rights. And probably the most draconian one is it gives them the right or the option to rip up the contract and treat it as if it never existed. So the case that established this principle was uh, was Carter v. Byrne um, back in 1766 uh, with our friend, friend of the podcast, uh, Lord Mansfield, um, as the judge. Um, but the, the story, and we're going to be looking back at the historical context of the decision and the story of the trial, um, the story starts about a decade or so earlier. So, so please could you set the scene for our drama? First of all, in terms of geography, where is the action set? Okay, so we're going to go back to about the 1750s, and we're going to go to the island of Sumatra in uh, Southeast Asia. It's the sixth largest island in the world, in fact, according to Wikipedia. 
Uh, it's in a great trading position. It's got the Indian Ocean on one side and it's got the Straits of Malacca to the north and the South China Sea to the west. So it's, it's full and very, very rich in minerals. And therefore, uh, back in the 1700s, it was quite a popular place to go and uh, have a look at. It also got a lot of volcanoes. And what are the key geopolitical developments um, around Sumatra in the 1750s? What, what are the key issues that we're looking at in historical terms? Well, it was all about establishing trading rights in Southeast Asia, getting spices, getting opium, uh, getting uh, commodities. And the two big players that were trying to dominate that trade were the British and the Dutch. Uh, by the mid-1700s, we've got two big sort of state companies, the state actors. We've got the British East India Company and we've got the Dutch East India Company. Uh, regional HQ for the British East India Company was Fort George in uh, Madras, what's now Chennai in India. But the British East India Company ran a massive network of trading outposts all across Asia. Uh, north and south, of what was, these were called forts, but really they were trading settlements. And the idea was in each settlement, a representative of the British East India Company would trade with the local chieftain and then send that all back to the UK and sell it for massive profit. Okay. The rival, however, was the Dutch East India Company. They wanted the same thing. Um, it had been formed sometime before the British East India Company. It was actually a lot more successful as well. It had already taken control of most of Indonesia by that time. Its regional HQ was in the city of Batavia, what is now modern-day Jakarta, the, cap the current capital of Indonesia. So there was this big standoff. The British East India Company and the Dutch East India Company did not get along at all, always trying to outdo each other, having big arguments, sometimes going to war about it uh, as well. But they were all arguing over the trade, the spice trade uh, of uh, Southeast Asia. And um, you mentioned there that there's a, a series of forts um, around the area. Um, we're focused on one of those forts, Fort Marlborough. So, so tell us a little bit about that. So, right, Fort Marlborough is uh, one of the sort of sub-forts, sort of halfway down the western coast of Sumatra uh, at a town what then called Benkulun, currently called Benkulu. It started up in 1713. Main spice there was pepper. That was the main commodity traded. But unfortunately, Fort Marlborough was a pretty miserable place to go. It was a bit of a dive. Batavia made lots of money for the Dutch. Fort Marlborough lost tens of thousands a year. Um, but it had a really key strategic value. And that was it was one of the very few British trading outposts in Sumatra. So the Dutch didn't want to go to war with the Brits at the time. So they had to accept that they couldn't have a monopoly on all of the trade in Sumatra, which is a gigantic island, sixth largest island in the world. So as long as Fort Marlborough was there, dive and hellhole though it is, and massive money pit for the British East India Company, strategically really, really, really important. So that's our stage. Uh, but now we need our main actor, um, Roger Carter, the Carter of... Carter v. Boom. So, so tell us about him and the events leading up to September 1759. Funnily enough, in the, in the case reports from the 1760s, he's called George Carter, but from all of the material that I could find, he's actually called Roger Carter, not George. So I'm going to call him Roger. He was a younger son of a Lincolnshire landowner, born 1723. Because he was the younger son, he knew 
that he could never inherit the family land. So he had to go and do something else. His dad got him a job aged 18 with the British um, East India Company. The next year, only aged only 19, he gets sent out to Fort Marlborough uh, and to Ben Coolen as his first job. I think it's important to say that this was a pretty risky job. This was not a gap year uh, around Asia. Uh, at the time, if you were employed by the British East India Company, you had a one in three chance of dying in the first 12 months that you were there. So these were pretty, when you say goodbye to your family at the wharf, uh, you, you know, it was a strong chance you were never coming back. But Carter was clearly made of quite st strong stuff because he kept it going. He did very, very well. He rose up the company ranks. He became the deputy governor of the fort. He lasted for 12 years, to so about 1756. Then he has his first sabbatical. He gets his first holiday to come back to London. Uh, at the time, it would take you eight months to sail back from Sumatra to London. Um, so he basically gets two years off, comes back to London, brings with him a load of his plunder, uh, sells that, makes a fortune, and then goes to Company HQ and says, right, I'm going back to Fort Marlborough. If I'm going to withstand this pit, you've got to make me a governor. I want a pay rise, uh, please. At the time, as deputy governor, I think he was earning £300 a year which in today's money was about £60,000. So he was doing pretty well for himself at the time. He goes back to Fort Marlborough, 1750. Holiday, sabbatical over in the UK. He goes back to Fort Marlborough, 1758. But by this point, the political situation in Asia is pretty difficult. It's not just about Britain versus the Dutch and, and the various companies in competition. We've also got the French. Um, by 1758, the Seven Years' War between Britain and France has begun. And that really was one of the early sort of global conflicts where the French and the British were battling it out all around the world. They, in, in America, uh, this is before the American War of Independence, they're having, they're having battles in America, in Europe. And again, there was this big fight for control of Asia and the colonies. Um, so by the time Roger Carter comes back to Fort Marlborough, his regional HQ is already under attack by the French. They've been, they'd laid siege to Fort George in Chennai at the time. And their sole purpose for the French was just to cause as much havoc to the British as they could all over Asia. And when he got back to Fort Marlborough in 1758, poor old Roger had um, quite a lot at stake. Although he earned a bit of a, a pretty penny from the company for his own salary, the thing that really made money for people like Carter was their side hustle. Everybody who worked for the British company at the time, if you were sent somewhere abroad, you were allowed to have your own personal trading. So if a big shipment of spice, of pepper was going out, you could say, well, do you know what? I'm going to buy some of that cheap myself. Some of that will go to the company, but I'll keep my own stock and I'll sell that privately and I'll, I'll turn a massive profit. And it wasn't just spice they were doing it opium as well, and much as I hate to say it, sometimes slaves too. But the idea was that you would do your own personal side hustle trading on the side, you'd make a ton of money, so that if you survived it to the end of 10, 20 years, you could go back to the UK, sell all of that, and you'd be absolutely minted. So Carter, when he was at Fort Marlborough, traded quite a lot, salt, gold, opium, and as I mentioned earlier, sadly, uh, slaves. He even set up a drug-running distribution agreement to sell opium for the company all across Asia, uh, the, what was called the Natal Concern. I mean, he got back to the fort in 1750. He had a, he had a ton of stock, £20,000 worth of stock at the time, about £4 million 
in today's money. He's only 33 and he's pretty worried because he knows that his regional HQ is under attack from the French and he knows the French could well attack Fort Marlborough at the same time. So events up to September 1759 are that Roger Carter has come back from a sabbatical in London. He's got a ton of personal stock at the fort, but he's blooming worried that the French are going to come and nick it. So uh, so what does he do about that? Aha. Well, leading up to September 1759, he gets increasingly worried because in February 1759, he gets a letter from a company colleague who's a spy in the Dutch camp in Batavia. And that says to him, did you know that the French planned to take Fort Marlborough last year, but they decided against it for various reasons? He also, in September 1759, he gets a letter from another colleague who at the time has just stopped off and stationed at the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. And that says, careful, mate, did you know there's quite a big flotilla of French naval vessels coming around the Cape of Good Hope and... All they want to do is take plunder from the British all over the Far East. So initially, Carter takes these reports very seriously. He's a bit worried about it. He does some work to improve the pretty puny defences of the fort. But he also had to protect his fortune. He needed to make sure that his side hustle wealth got back to Blighty and he could, you know, be a man about town. So in September of that year, he has a ship passing through. And as they said, that's your basically, that's your DHL courier. You want to pass a pile of letters onto your friends and family in London. And one of those was a letter he wrote to his brother, Thomas. And he said to his brother, he said, look, I want you to buy a very specific insurance policy. Can you go and buy me insurance to cover half of my stock, £10,000? And I want it to be covered against a single risk. And that's the risk of all of my stock being lost to a European enemy, in the event that it was to attack Fort Marlborough. Now, today, we would call that a war risk. And he writes his letter in September 1759, and that letter is to ask for insurance cover for a loss by attack if it occurs between October 1759 and October 1760. He only insured half the cargo. He had 20,000 worth of cargo. He wanted to insure half of the value, and he was willing to take the other half as self-insured. The ship that was carrying the letters, it took eight months to get to London, finally got to London in April uh, 1760. And then in May 1760, Roger's brother, Thomas, uh, goes and buys his insurance policy. So so, so, hang on. so, so in May 1760, the underwriters agreed to uh, provide a policy that actually started eight months earlier, in, in September 1759. So we were already, by the time the policy was issued, we were already eight months into the policy. So kind of why on earth would an insurer do that? It is very weird, isn't it? Very, very weird. These days, with all of our electronic communication, it would be unthinkable to cover a 12-month risk when you're already eight months into that risk. But you've got to remember that the information travelled at a snail's pace back then. It took eight months for a letter to get from Sumatra to London. Therefore, it would get take eight months for news of an attack on Sumatra to reach London. So because of that massive time delay, it was very, very normal for somebody to buy insurance for a risk which was already massively, massively, massively underway. The only proviso was that if at the time the person bought that insurance, they weren't aware that a loss had occurred. 
Um, and the, the underwriter was Charles Boehm, who is the, the second main uh, actor in our, in our play. So what do we know about the underwriter, Charles Boehm? Uh, we know that he was a very successful businessman. Charles Boehm was one of the directors, the original founding directors of the Bank of England. He was a director of one of the two insurance companies that was allowed to trade at the time, the London Assurance Corporation. He lived in Twickenham and he was uh, having a pretty good life, making quite a lot of money. But as many people did at the time, he wanted more. So Boehm's side hustle, and we talked about Carter's side hustle, Boehm's side hustle was that he was a personal underwriter in the Royal Exchange and he would take bets. He would underwrite people's risks. And that's what he did. Excellent. So we have our two main uh, characters. And so the scene is set for, well, he ends up in an insurance dispute. So there's always going to be a problem somewhere. So meanwhile, back in Fort Marlborough, what was happening there? And this is, this is a third character in our story. The baddie comes into play. <laughs> this guy's great. This is our villain. If you're going to have an insurance claim, you've got to have a loss. Who causes the loss? Well, we've got a very cunning and crafty French nobleman, the Comte Charles-Henri Hector d'Estaing. That's my best French accent. It was amazing. <laughs> Merci. Merci beaucoup. Merci beaucoup. Um, Uber posh Frenchman. D'Estaing went to school with the Dauphin of France, the heir to the throne. Very, very well connected. His dad had enrolled him to be a musketeer at the age of nine, and he was a career soldier. Uh, and at the same time that... Roger Carter is returning to Fort Marlborough in 1758. Count de Stang is doing his bit for the French army in the Seven Years' War, and he is part of the siege of Fort George, the British company HQ in India. The Wally that he is, he gets captured by the Brits as part of the siege, and you think, hurrah! The great thing is, if you, at that time, if you were officer class and you were rich as a prisoner of war you could negotiate a ransom that your army would pay to your captors for your release. The British thought, great, we've got a count. This is going to get us tons of wonga. But after a few months, they couldn't agree the right price. So they decided to let him go, uh, bizarrely. And they did this thing. They let him go on what's called a parole of honour. And the Count de Stang, the cunning and crafty Frenchman that he is, the British said, well, we'll let you go. We haven't agreed your ransom, but we'll let you go. And you're meant to go back to London. You give us your honour, Scout's honour, that you won't go back into the fight. You go straight back to London. You present yourself to the British government and you'll agree a ransom that your French government will pay. And then you can go back to France. And the Count de Stang said, uh, mais bien sûr, of course I will do it. And they let him go. Did he do that? Did he hit? Stuff that. What he did, he went straight to another French colony at the time, the island of Mauritius, down on the east coast of Africa. And he said to the governor of Mauritius, he said, look, I can't get back in the French army because I've said I'm on his parole of honour, but can you give me a couple of ships and I'll act as a privateer and I'll go out and attack as many British vessels as I can. So Count de Stang gets authority to be a bit of a, a Jack Sparrow around uh, the East Indies. And so he starts making his way in early 1760 down the northwest coast of Sumatra, picking off British company settlements and their loot. So we get to April 1760. The Count on his ship, he's reached Fort Marlborough and he attacks. 
Carter, he's got no defence whatsoever. He sends as much of the British company's cash and loot to Batavia, to the Dutch. He trusts it to the Dutch for some reason. Gives the order uh, to abandon the fort and he tries to run off into the jungle. But the key thing was, by that point, 3rd of April, 1760, within the period of the insurance policy, Fort Marlborough had been attacked by a foreign enemy and poor old Roger Carter's loot had been gotten. His, his stash of illicit drugs has been stolen. So Carter has suffered his loss, um, and it's precisely the type of loss that he had insured against, um, and the risk was exactly the risk that he had uh, bought his insurance policy for. So in theory, it was a nice, straightforward claim. Um, but uh, it's, it's sort of, in today's money, sort of £2 million worth of, of loss, isn't it? So the, the underwriter, Mr Byrne, wasn't happy. So what was his main concern and how did he justify not paying the claim? Bohm alleged, in effect, that Carter, or his brother, had made an unfair presentation on three grounds, or three things he said. First of all, he said that Carter had failed to tell Bohm that Fort Marlborough wasn't really a fort at all, and that, in fact, it didn't have any defences. It was only a trading settlement and would never be able to withstand any sort of attack by a a Western uh, foreign enemy. That's the first thing. Second thing he says is that he alleges that Carter failed to disclose that Carter himself, he well knew that uh, there was a high risk that Fort Marlborough would be attacked by the French at some point. So he says, you didn't tell me that. And the third thing he says, he says, you failed to tell me that actually in February 1759, six months before you wrote your letter to your brother, you didn't tell me you'd already received a letter from one of your colleagues in Batavia, the Batavian spy, let's call them. They'd sent you a letter warning you that the French had already planned to attack and to take Fort Marlborough, but at that time had called it off. You knew that and you didn't tell me. And he said, those were all material facts. You should have told me, but you didn't. And whilst it pains me to do so, Mr. Carter, I'm afraid the only thing I can do in this situation is to avoid the contract and rip it up. And I'm Deeply sorry, but I am unable to pay your claim. And you have to say that, that there's some merit in, in what Byrne was saying. It, 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 does, it does look from this distance that Carter knew stuff that he wasn't necessarily passing on to, to the underwriter. Um, but anyway, it, it all went off to trial. Um, 1762, the two of them, Carter and uh, Mr. Byrne, kind of uh, trundled off to court. Um, and this is the first first trial so uh, what was the outcome of that trial in front of a jury made up of businessmen? <laughs> well, essentially, Bohm lost. He was unsuccessful at the first trial. He tried to rely upon two letters uh, to say that they were evidence of unfair presentation and of breach of duty of good faith. The first was a letter that uh, Roger sent to his own brother. In that letter, Roger actually told his brother that he was quite worried that the folk would get attacked uh, by the French. Therefore, please go and buy some insurance. Bohm thought that was a material fact that he should have told the court. Not bad, not bad. I think I, I, I probably think the same. In the second letter, the second letter was, was a letter that Carter sent to his bosses in Company HQ. And it's a bit of a weird one, this, because we don't actually know what that letter says in total, because they said, look, national security precludes us from sharing any of our correspondence. But they let the judge have a read of it. And the judge did make some comment to it in the later published judgment. So we know that the second letter 
includes Carter saying back to HQ that he was aware of a French plan to take the fort in the year before. That's the plan that he was told about by the Batavian spy that but then they then changed their mind. And he also tells his boss and says, look, if we do get attacked, we're goners. We're not going to be able to withstand it. Um, the broker, Mr. Cawthorn, gave evidence peculiarly, even though he was an agent of the of Mr. Carter, gave evidence for Mr. Bowman, said, yeah, these letters should have been disclosed. And if these letters had been disclosed, Mr. Bowman would have refused the risk. It was clearly material to him. First trial, London 1762, special jury of London merchants. They looked at all of Bohm's evidence and said, sorry, claim is payable. No breach of good faith. It's been fairly presented. You must pay the claim. And then what happened? Was it, a, was, was it an, a, an appeal to Lord Mansfield or, or, or a second trial? Well, what happens next? We have our fourth character, Lord Mansfield. He comes in, a very, very distinguished member of our judiciary. And he presided over the first trial. He wasn't part of the verdict. No doubt he would have given guidance to the jury. But we don't have, we can't find any published record of what he might have said during that first trial. But as part of his appeal, Bohm's legal team to come back before Lord Mansfield. And they have to persuade him that they're entitled to get a fresh trial. So Lord Mansfield has to decide whether Bohm and his legal team have got any clear grounds to challenge that merchant's jury's decision and to get a fresh hearing. And uh, I should do my normal disclaimer about Lord Mansfield, which is that regrettably he and I are not related in any way. His surname was Murray. He was the son of a Jacobite, wasn't he? So he, he was always an outsider in London. But anyway, I'll, <laughs> I'll, do an, I'll do an episode on Lord Mansfield some other time. You must, you um, must. But yeah, so, so, so what was Lord Mansfield's um, approach to the case? What principles of law did he, did he rely upon? Sure. He saw it that an insurance contract, it's contract to speculation, and that because all of the knowledge or most of the knowledge of the risk lies with the insured, the person who wants to buy the insurance, the insurer trusts the insured to make a full and accurate presentation of the risk, a fair presentation of the risk. The insured must neither withhold any material or relevant information, nor must the insured mislead the insurer, give them any inaccurate information. But, you know, he's a balanced guy, Lord Mansfield. Um, he's a consumer champion. It wasn't all in favour of the insurer. He said there are certain instances where an insurer doesn't have to disclose material information. And those are twofold. First, he said that an insured doesn't have to disclose anything which the insurer himself or herself already knows or which they already should know, which they should be deemed to know, because an insurer should know, you know, should be jolly clever and on top of all the risks and the types of the risks that they want to insure. So that's the first thing. And secondly, Mansfield said that the insured does not need to disclose anything which would lessen the risk. Mansfield also felt that if an underwriter is given enough information by an insured about a particular aspect of the risk, well that then puts that underwriter on notice that if they want to know more about that particular aspect of the risk, they've got to ask further questions. And if the insurer fails to make those inquiries, then the insurer is deemed to have waived materiality in relation to that further information. Now, every single one of those principles, they're still pretty sound law today. The idea of a duty of good faith has kind of been rebranded as a duty of fair presentation and the remedies in England have, uh, have slightly changed and in other Commonwealth jurisdictions have changed. But you can take the sentences from Mansfield's judgment and honestly, you can transplant them 
into statute around the world today, 250 years later. It was um, all still stands from a judgment given in 1766. So sound principles. And the, the million dollar question, or I suppose more accurately, the two million pounds in today's money question, um, how did Lord Mansfield apply those legal principles to the facts of Carter v. Boehm? Sadly, poor old Charles Boehm had another bad day in court. Mansfield saw no reason to interfere with the decision of the jury, and he rejected every part of uh, Boehm's appeal. Policy was valid. Insurance claim was payable. On the first allegation, Fort Marlborough is not a fort, it's not actually a fort, and you didn't tell me allegation. Um, Mansfield said that, sorry, Mr. Boehm, but you're a reputable underwriter and merchant about town. You either did know, or you should have known, that these smaller British East India Company settlements, such as Fort Marlborough, they're not going to be forts at all. They're not going to be fortified in any way. They were commercial uh, trading ports. You'd also know, Mr. Boehm, that for Mr. Carter, as a governor of one of these company trading settlements, they would recognise that there was a general ongoing risk of attack against that trading settlement by foreign enemies, and that Mr. Carter is just seeking cover against that general ongoing risk. Prudent underwriter, you know, could have asked more questions about Fort Marlborough, but he didn't ask the questions. So I'm sorry, Mr. Bohm, you waived the right, or you waived materiality is what we say in relation to any further information about Fort Marlborough. So that's the first thing that he got pushed back on. Second allegation of breach of good faith was about the apprehension of a French attack and the concerns that were shared in the two letters. Remember the letter to his brother that said, I'm really, really worried we're going to get attacked. And in a letter to a company HQ that said, you do know the French wanted to attack us last year and change their mind. Well, first of all, on the one where he said to his brother, look, I'm a bit worried about this. Mansfield said, look, that was just Carter's personal opinion. It wasn't a fact. And you only have to disclose the fact. It's only, it's only an obligation to disclose material facts. It's not an obligation to disclose material opinions. Or just by giving an opinion, you're not going to breach the obligation of good faith. I mean, the bizarre thing is that the court and also Bohm's legal team, they accepted that in September 1759, when he wrote those letters, um, the fort wasn't in fact under any greater risk of attack by the French. All the rumours of attack were discarded as uh, false intel, and nobody in the British East India Company actually expected the French to attack Sumatra. It wasn't until January 1760, when good old uh, Count d'Estaing turned up off the coast of Sumatra, that actually the threat of a French attack became pretty real. The warning letter that was written to Carter by the Batavian spy in February 1759, um, Mansfield said, look, that's just speculation. Doesn't add anything. Um, it described an attack which had been planned but had never gone ahead. It was probably just, again, mere personal opinion from the Batavian spy. Doesn't add anything. So wonderfully, in fact, Mansfield reached the conclusion that there can't have been any unfair presentation by Carter because by the time that his brother turned up at the Royal Exchange in May 1760. Charles Bohm, man about town, prudent underwriter at the Royal Exchange, he should actually have a far greater knowledge of the risk of attack of Fort Marlborough in May 1760, as George Carter did when he sent his letter in September 1759. Charles Bohm had more information on it than Carter, therefore was not given an offer presentation of the risk and had to pay the claim. So Bohm lost his case. Carter hadn't concealed anything. I suppose the irony of all of this, of course, is that uh, when the policy was actually underwritten by Boehm, 
Fort Marlborough had already gone. <laughs> Fort Marlborough had already been taken. Um, but obviously no one knew that at the time. Um, I have to say, when I first came across Carter and Boehm, I was surprised by the outcome because, I mean, it felt as though Lord Mansfield had been unduly lenient because, uh, you know, we're obviously looking at the case from a 21st century lens and over the last 200 years of case law as well, and, and much of which has tightened up the duty in favour of insurers, at least until fairly recently. And, and we'll discuss that change in, in part two of, the, of this two-part series. But before we leave this story, Ian, um, it's time for the curtain call. So please could you tell us what happened to all the main characters? First of all, Charles Burm, what happened to him? He was still very, very rich. This didn't make a dent in his family fortune. All I know about him is he lived out his days in Twickenham. He's buried in a churchyard there. Uh, family portrait hangs in the Tate Gallery, um, as far as I'm aware. But I'm afraid I don't know too much about uh, Charles Bohm. Lord Mansfield. Yes. Lord Mansfield remained on the up and up. His judgments helped uh, begin the path for abolitionist slavery in Britain in 1824. You should definitely, definitely do an episode on Lord Mansfield. He gave one of the first judgments on the law of privacy. He, in fact, ruled this case. You'll love it. He ruled on the honour of a transgender French spy by the name of Chevalier Dion. Um, he retired to Kenwood House in London, tended his gardens, and he died peacefully at age 88, which was a wonderful age for uh, George and Britain. So he did very well, Lord Mansfield. And his house is uh, open to the public, I think. He's got a lovely art gallery there. Um, Count Destang. I sh- sorry, I should say, boo, Count Destang. Boo. He's behind boo. you. He's behind you. Comte Destang. <laughs> Comte Destang. Cashed in on George Carter's drugs. Returned to France. Gets made up to Vice Admiral. Gets divorced. Doesn't like home life. Doesn't like being in France. So he goes out to America in support of the American War of Independence. Doesn't have a good time at that. Uh, he tries and fails to, to lay siege to Savannah, Georgia. Gets injured and has to come back to France. But unfortunately, by the time he comes back to France, there's a little thing called the the French Revolution. And being a nobleman in the French Revolution and being great pals of the Dauphin is never going to go down well with the revolutionaries. So they sent poor old Count de Stein to the guillotine in 1794. Reportedly, his uh, final words, or close to final words written were, after my head falls off, Send it to the British. They will pay a good deal for it. Anyway, I'm sure it couldn't have happened to a nicer man. And we should also point out that an ex-president of uh, France, uh, Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, um, is no real relation to him at all. Apparently, <laughs> Valéry Giscard's grandfather just took the name d'Estaing. There, there is a very, very, very tangential family link to the <laughs> d'Estaings. But he, he's, he's not really related to... Uh, Kant, uh, he's not, uh, really? no, he's not. No, well, That's I mean, very, 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 dis- very, 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 dis- terrible behavior. I know, terrible Shocking. behavior. Shocking. Anyway, moving on to our hero, Roger Carter. What happened to Roger? He carried on doing his job, actually. Uh, while all the legal, legal wrangling was going on in London, he's just carrying on as governor of uh, Fort Marlborough, making more and more money, I guess. Um, Count de Stang ransoms for once he's taken it, he doesn't want to hang on to it. Doesn't, nobody wants to stay there. So he ransoms it back to the British, takes even more cash from the British, 
once he's ransomed it back, gives it back to British and Roger Carter heads back and he just carries on there until he resigned in 1767. He's made a ton of loot and uh, he moves back to Britain. And I have to say that is where the trail on Roger Carter goes cold. But I do know he had an awful lot of cash. And finally, what became of Fort Marlborough itself? Fort Marlborough's still there. It's still there in the town of Benkulu. Uh, it stayed in British hands for about another 50 years. The founding father of Singapore, Sir Stamford Raffles, he was stationed there in the early 1800s as a governor uh, with his family before he was able to wangle his way to becoming a governor of Singapore. He spent some time as governor of uh, Fort Marlborough. Pretty tragic for him, however, because uh, while he was there, several of his children died from tropical diseases. Then 1824, Anglo-Dutch Treaty, the British hand Fort Marlborough to the Dutch. They agreed to give the Dutch a complete monopoly over Sumatra. It was actually a wonderful, wonderful deal for us. By the time it closed, Fort Marlborough was an even bigger money pit. Tens of millions of pounds loss each year in today's money. And in return for Fort Marlborough, the Dutch gave us, or they rather they gave up rights over the island of Singapore. So we traded Fort Marlborough for the island of Singapore. So Stafford Raffles lands there, and the rest is history, as they say. Best description I could find of uh, the fort came from the man Raffles himself. When he arrived there in 1818, he writes a letter back to England, and he says that uh, Fort Marlborough was, without exception, the most wretched place I have ever beheld. He'd never been to Swindon, had he? Never been to Swindon. (laughs) You can't be mean Um, about Swindon. (laughs) No, no, I apologise. On behalf of all Swindonians, I'm sure there's a bit of it which is half pleasant. Um, <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally, finally, there's a roundabout. Ian. There's a roundabout. There's a couple of roundabouts here that probably pick <laughs> There are lots of roundabouts. Um, so finally, Ian, um, the question I ask everybody is, uh, and it's almost entirely inappropriate at the end of all of that. But what bit of advice would you give from your many years of uh, of experience, Mr. Anderson? Um, what, what a bit of advice would you give to someone who's thinking about um, entering the insurance world? I think there's three things I'm going to say. Okay. One is don't be afraid to be yourself. Insurance is a human business. And I think there's a real, real advantage in being genuine and normal. Life is better when we're all just normal people. Second thing I'd say is be adventurous. Try different areas of insurance. Try out different roles to define the one that you love, that you find really, really interesting. And then all you've got to do is become really, really good at it. And you'll be a success and you'll enjoy it. It's simple. Third thing I'd say is go abroad. I went abroad, daunting at times, but you learn tons and you have an absolute ball. And the great thing about insurance is it's global. So you can go and work wherever you like. There, that's my words of wisdom to the youngsters from an old buffy. <laughs> Ian, that was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.